Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on April 17th at about 3pm London time. So obviously if anything happened in the time after this interview, we're unable to cover them. As always, if you want to uh, follow us on Twitter, be sure to follow us on at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us using the hashtag Talking Terror. And go on to our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C to find out all that we do here in the centre. And actually, today's episode is the last episode in this first series of Talking Terror. So uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening and thank everyone who's helped along the way. There'll be more thanks at the end. So if you want to, if you want to skip those at the end, you can stop it after, after the interview has stopped. But um, it's my great pleasure for this last episode to welcome on board. At last, I've got him into the studio. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Anthony Richards, uh, my colleague here at UEL. Um, he's knocked on our door during the Joe Busher interview. He's come in for the definitional interview in re relation to Las Vegas. But now we've got to focus on Anthony's own research. Anthony is a reader in criminology and criminal justice here at UEL and a fellow of Turk. His research focuses have been on conceptualizing terrorism, UK counterterrorism strategy, radicalization and extremism. He's also published on a wide range of other terrorist-related themes, including British public and Muslim attitudes towards both terrorism and counterterrorism, homeland security, terrorism in Northern Ireland, and terrorism and sport. He was actually the lead editor for the volume Terrorism and the Olympics, Major Event Security and Lessons for the Future, published by Routledge in 2011. He wants to get on that Olympic bandwagon himself and Andrew Silk and Pete Fussy at that time. His book, Conceptualising Terrorism, was published with Oxford University Press in September 2015 and was nominated by OUP for the Political Study Association's Best Political Science Book of the Year Award, the WJM McKenzie Prize. And he is currently the, uh, the director of the Combating Jihadist Terrorism in the United Kingdom, also known as COGIT. Anthony, thanks so much for being on today's uh, pod. Uh, we've decided to finish the series with definitional issues rather than starting it like so many others would do. Thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So... You're the last person who's going to have to answer this question in this series. How did you get involved in this area of research? Well, it was almost 25 years ago now, I suppose, that um, I went back as a mature student um, and took a history degree. And in the final year of that history degree at Kingston University in London, there was a module on international terrorism. And one of the things that really struck me and that, what that particular module left me thinking was, gosh, People are carrying out these acts of brutal violence and they're not being carried out by psychologically abnormal people or people who are deranged in some way. Um, that it appears, to, it appears to be then that they're actually they're psychologically just as normal as, as the rest of us. And that sort of really captured my attention and I thought, well, I would like to look into this phenomenon a little bit further. Mm -hmm. And where did that lead you then, like after doing this, doing this degree in Kingston? How did well, I, I, I took, yeah, finished the degree in Kingston, um, then went to St Andrews University, did a master's course there on international security studies, and there was a strong terrorism component in that uh, master's degree. And then following that, I, I did a PhD in the University of St Andrews again uh, with the late and the great Professor Paul Wilkinson um, on um, in the context of Northern Ireland. In fact, the the, the PhD uh, was basically on terrorist political fronts and the extent that terrorist political fronts, using the cases of the loyalist groups and the IRA, mm. um, whether they represented moderation towards the use of violence or whether they were simply another tool in the armed struggle. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic and it actually fits well with, I'm not sure if you heard the episode with Mary Beth Altier as well, who was looking at those political fronts and looking at um, voting strategies and support yeah, yeah. as well. So what was it like working with Paul, uh, studying under Paul during that time? You know, I, I suppose the best way it could be summarised is that uh, whenever I left his office, there was a spring in my step. Nice. There was a re real, uh, you always left the 
of feeling more enthusiastic. Not that you went in without enthusiasm, mm. but you, he, he certainly gave that extra spring to your step. He had a, an insatiable enthusiasm for the topic itself. And of course, his core research interest was how do liberal democratic states respond robustly to the, the problem of terrorism without overstepping the mark, without compromising our civil liberties. And of course, he thought that was uh, eminently possible. Um, and so... What, I know you haven't picked in your selection of three the, any of his pieces um, to have influenced you, but I know that his writings have had a huge influence. So if you were to pick any of his of his works, what would it be? Well, will it be terrorism and the liberal democratic state? I, I think uh, the, the choice of three there, uh, of course, I would have liked to have added further, further yeah. ones and... Uh, and uh, Paul's one certainly sort of been in there, um, and and you know given uh, my more subsequent interest in UK counterterrorism strategy, of course his work becomes ever more relevant. Yeah, and it, I I think from from previous guests, from talking to previous guests, that that task that I set you all to torture you all of picking those three pieces that influence <laughs> you is actually for some the toughest uh, the toughest question that I ask and I didn't actually mean it as a tough question but <laughs> what were the three uh, that you chose as, well, as influencing and inspiring? Well, they, as, you're right there, there are a number of uh, influences in the formative years of studying terrorism and um, uh, one of them origins of terrorism psychologies ideologies theologies states of mind by Walter Reich I mean given that I was really interested in why it was that people were motivated to carrying out acts of terrorism. I think this is a really good text to read to begin with. Um, it's interdisciplinary mm. for a start, um, but also it, it tried to straddle the sort of debate between whether it was psychological factors that led to acts of terrorism or was it a rational strategic choice to use the method of terrorism. And, and that's sort of what, what drew me into the book then. I thought that was a very interesting read. Um, Martha Crenshaw, who in, in fact was of course prominent in that particular mm -hmm. book, um, she, she uh, thankfully brought out a book called Explaining Terrorism, which uh, was the culmination of a number of really uh, uh, influential pieces that she'd written. Um, and I've always uh, had a high regard for Martha Crenshaw um, on the definitional issue itself and on the causes um, of terrorism as well. So um, that, that also uh, was very interesting in, you know, of course, the book came out in 2011, but her work in general mm. uh, has, has had an influence. Um, other, I think, worthy books of note, when starting out studying terrorism, I thought Bruce Hoffman's Inside Terrorism, when the first edition of that came out, um, and I know a, an enormous amount of work went into that from Bruce, because yeah. he was at the University of St Andrews at the time, and indeed <laughs> uh, I was at the book launch for the first edition of that. And, and there's a real strength. It's a really, really good read, and in particular, perhaps, the... the um, the chapter on the media and public opinion, yeah. um, a really extensive chapter, uh, really uh, addressing this issue of the, of the, uh, the link between the media um, and terrorism. So um, uh, all of those, and I, I shouldn't, uh, I don't think there's a third option, Alex Schmidt's work. Mm -hmm. And again, it's his work in general rather than any piece in particular, though of course his uh, 2004 piece on the definition of terrorism uh, was particularly useful for me. And of course since then he's come out with a, a number of important works, not least the Routledge Handbook yeah. of Terrorism Research, which is a tremendous database uh, piece. I mean, you know, Alex is a prolific researcher in terrorism. I think uh, uh, many, many, many people have, have benefited from that. Yeah, you've, you've picked some of the big hitters there. If you, if you walk down the names of the people you've talked about there, you've got Paul Wilkinson, Bruce Hoffman, Martha Crenshaw, Alex Schmidt, and then Walter Wright's book uh, brought in there. I'd, I'm, I know that they're pieces that have influenced many. And actually, it's a nice bookend for this series because uh, our former colleague, Andrew Silk, in the very first episode of this, he picked um, Walter Wright's <laughs> Origins of Terrorism as well. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's you. There, it goes without saying that these these pieces were influential, uh, not just on your career, but on on many of our careers and the way that we think about terrorism. But you picked the very final one that you picked. There was uh, Alex Schmidt's uh, the definitional uh, terrorism, the definitional problem. And this is what you've become known for in recent years, uh, your work on conceptualizing terrorism, and not just conceptualizing terrorism, but conceptualizing extremism, etc., and looking at it in, in relation specifically um, to the UK uh, counterterrorism and countering violent extremism agenda. What was it that drew you away from that Northern Ireland focus of your PhD to these, uh, these definitional debates? 
I think one of the uh, factors that, that would, have been, uh, would have led to that is working on the Economic and Social Research Council project, which was the domestic management of terrorist attacks in the UK while I was up at St Andrews. So, mm. we're, we're, of course, that, that wasn't just about, uh, uh, wasn't just concerned with the Northern Irish threat, but the evolving international threat as well. Um, and it was during the course of that, that that it really struck me that, okay, um, um, almost overnight, uh, you know, having been to, uh, spoken to a number of people actually, that terrorism is, for me, is best conceptualised as a particular method of political violence. Mm-hmm. And it didn't come overnight, but it, in other words, that when we're conceptualising or defining terrorism, it should not, uh, we, we should not be linking it inherently to particular ideologies. Of course, if you have a violent ideology or a doctrine that justifies the use of terrorism, of course that should be included as part of an overall definition of terrorism within it. But these violent ideologies of ISIS, they can't take ownership Mm. of terrorism, which is why we have to look at terrorism as a method. And if it ticks the boxes or the criteria as to what constitutes an act of violence, if you witness an act of violence as to what constitutes an act of terrorism, then an act of terrorism, it remains whoever has carried it out. And that's, and, and I suppose, uh, yes, that, that's, it, it sort of prompted me to try and be more analytical about how we deal with a phenomenon of terrorism rather than, as Martha Crencher and others would say, rather than as being too emotional about using it. So with all that in mind, like any student of, of terrorism studies knows um, that normally, like historically, the first chapter of any book on terrorism is what yeah. does this author mean by terrorism? What do you see as the core problems in, in defining terrorism? Um, and how do you aim to tackle them in your yeah, book, yeah. Conceptualising Terrorism? It, it, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really, really, really good question. I think, uh, for me, there are two major issues. One is um, the subjective application of the term. Mm. How do you take the subjectivity out of what is very often used as an emotionally loaded, perjurative term? How do you draw... How do you sort of begin to get some sort of analytical value into a concept that has been used in that way. Mm. The second big challenge is what components or elements do you then include in your definition of terrorism? Um, so, so for me, those are the two biggest issues. The subjective application of the term and how you transcend that mm. when you come to an understanding as to what terrorism means yourself and also what um, elements you include in a definition of ter- terrorism that you're comfortable with, whoever that person may be. And how about in relation to... You talk about, about the actors, um, about the importance of the actors and the importance of their motivations behind their final attack. Can a state actor uh, participate in terrorism? Yes, I think is the answer. I, I, I think um, um, I think f- the way I conceive of terrorism and indeed state terror, mm-hmm. I'd say state terrorism are comparatively rare mm-hmm. um, because I think um, when we're looking at more of the wide scale acts of what some people might call state terrorism, I prefer to call state terror. Okay. What's the difference? Um, I think the nature of the fear is different because uh, uh, because quantitatively it's different. Mm. The fear of a, a knock on the door in the middle of the night from the people that are supposed to be protecting you or from the state, um, I think is is a very different or qualitative difference in the nature of the fear experience to simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time okay. through an act of terrorism. And so let's let's take some concrete examples. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we had. Um, an act like the Las Vegas shooting, which we had towards the end of 2017. And in our discussion, myself, you and Andrew Sill, we discussed about whether they should be considered an act of terrorism. Remind our listeners why you came to the conclusion that this wasn't an act of terrorism. I think, if I recall, I didn't say it wasn't an act Mm. of terrorism. I I think I said it couldn't be called definitively an act of terrorism unless we knew what the motivation was behind the act of violence. Mm-hmm. Because uh, for me, an act of terrorism is an act of violence or the threat of violence mm-hmm. um, with the intent to generate a psychological impact beyond the immediate victims for a political motive. Mm-hmm. And, and unless we can determine um, the political motivation and indeed 
the act of violence as a message generator to generate an impact beyond the immediate victims, mm. then I think we're, we're, we're not really in the terrorism conceptual space. Yeah, yeah no, sorry for... Obviously, when I'm talking to someone who specializes in definitions, getting the wording of exactly what I'm saying <laughs> has to be. But you're right. You're right to, to pick me up on that. You like one of the things that uh, and I know from talking to you and reading your work, one of the core messages from your research on conceptualizing terrorism is as presented in your studies in conflict and terrorism piece, also called conceptualizing terrorism, is the, the first preliminary assumption that you make in conceptualizing terrorism. I'll just read it out here. There is no such thing as an act of violence that is in and of itself inherently terrorist. So a suicide bombing on its own isn't terrorist. A car bombing on its own isn't terrorist. Why do you think it was important to have that up, up front as one of the preliminary assumptions when putting forward your definition or develop, talking about developing a definition? Well, I think, I think it, again, helps us with conceptual clarity because I think it has been noted in the literature that oh, there are, as, as, as technological advances take place, there can be a whole variety of different types of terrorist tactics and we're not going to be able to keep, keep tab of these in a definition. I think this was the sort of feeling in, in, in mm. some of the literature out there. I said, mm. well, actually, you know what, I'm not sure that's uh, of prime concern or of prime relevance. Um, the key really is if there is an act of violence that is intended, or the threat of violence intended to generate a psychological beyond, uh, impact beyond the immediate victims uh, for a political motive, then it doesn't matter what type of violence it is. So, um, you know, and I, I think I use the example of a, of a car bomb um, where you think, well, if you've witnessed a car bomb, well, that's an act of terrorism. Actually, uh, that particular incident happened to be a soldier who was, going, who was trying to murder his pregnant wife, um, having suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. So, um, and you wouldn't classify that as an act of terrorism. Um, a marauding shooting on a bus in the Philippines. Uh, and you, you know, if you walk past that, you say, oh no, I, I, I've walked into an act of terrorism. Um, actually, on a particular instance, it was a, a police chief who had been sacked. And it was, it was basically, it was, a, um, it, it was sort of um, desperation, if you like, mm. uh, from, from that situation. Again, you wouldn't necessarily put that into the conceptual space of terrorism. Yeah. So, um, you know, even, even the 7-7 bombings in London, even the, the, the initial reports, whether it was an a, a electrical fault or that made it, you know, some, so even when you see or witness an act of violence, you need to have the other criteria in, in order to be able to definitively determine it as, as an act of terrorism. Yeah, and I think one of the important messages that you get across in your research, and I know we raise it in the discussion about, about Vegas, um, is that just because you're not conceptualizing something as an act of terrorism doesn't undermine the brutality, doesn't undermine the horror of it. It's just a different, it's, it's under different conceptual constraints there. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. One of the real challenges, if you like, when you're talking, when you're writing about defining terrorism, is that when you're saying something is or isn't terrorism, you're trying your best to be analytical about it. Mm. You're not saying something is less severe or more yeah. severe as a result. Um, and I think that is one of the challenges sometimes for academics when they go out in the real world, when people make the assumption that, oh, right, you're exonerating these acts of violence by not calling them terrorism. That certainly is not the case. We're in the business here of trying to be more analytical and less passionate. Mm. So has this whole preoccupation over the existence of terrorism studies with the definitional debate, has it stunted our progress? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think uh, it, it's, it's really important that we continue to have these conceptual debates. So it, it's very in interesting that if you, um, and I've you know, been to conferences where somebody who's literally just started out studying the phenomenon mm. puts up their hand and says, um, excuse me, what is, what is terrorism? What do people be, mean by terrorism? And it could be the same question asked still by somebody who's studied the phenomenon for 50 years. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's an enduring question. Yeah. It's an important one. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about politics in the real world, as we know, the label is often exploited um, and abused. Um, you know, we, I, I've been involved in debates as to, well, should we ditch the term terrorism completely? Um, because it's so exploited and abused. But actually, uh, you know, from an academic point of view, absolutely not, because, uh, you know, 
it's the academic realm, if you like, that, that can strive hardest, if you like, mm. to try and get some kind of analytical utility into the term. And then with this academic debate that we're having around it, what's the application of the results of that debate in practitioner and policymaker, uh, the policymaker realm? Uh, in yeah, relation yeah, to the results yeah, of our yeah, debate on yeah, it, it, it's a it's a really 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 good question because of course you you get too deeply into these debates in, in practitioner environments and audiences mm. um, and of course they, they see this as all rather abstract you know um, and, and not particularly relevant but I, I, I point out I mean uh, perhaps a very good example is um, in the latest contest strategy in the UK mm. and in the prevent documents it speaks of a non-violent but extremist ideology that is conducive to terrorism. Yeah. Now, given the way that I've sort of conceptualized terrorism, for me there's a real issue with that. If terrorism is ineluctably about violence or the threat of violence, yeah. how can you have a non-violent ideology that is conducive to terrorism? Mm -hmm. If there is an ideology that is conducive to terrorism, Surely there has to be some kind of doctrinal endorsement of the use of violence or terrorism for it to be conducive to terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's not non-violent. It shouldn't be non-violent. Um, if it is non-violent, then the culpability for terrorism lies with those who adopt the method of terrorism mm -hmm. in that ideology's name. And we can think of a number of non-violent ideologies um, where terrorism has been carried out in its name, not least single issue causes, animal rights, nationalism, and so on. Yeah. So um, immediately, in the sort of contemporary world, if you like, and, and it kind of adds to this idea that terrorism, the definitional question has real resonance, immediately, um, if you look at the conceptualists, you're thinking, well, um, you know, how can you have a non-violent ideology that's conducive to terrorism. Surely we should be looking at those who adopt the method of terrorism um, in the name of that ideology. Mm -hmm. If there is a violent ideology, if ISIS is, you know, justifies, you know, it, it has doctrinal support for violence, if Al-Qaeda does, of course that should be of uh, concern um, in terms of uh, the parameters of counter-terrorism. Mm -hmm. And of course ideologies in general should be of concern because it gives you some idea as to what the targeting might be of terrorist organizations. But the idea, as I said, to go back to it, that, that a nonviolent ideology can be conducive uh, to terrorism um, kind of flies in the face of a lot of the literature on, on the conceptual issue. Yeah, and this is a debate that you get into uh, in your piece from terrorism to radicalization uh, to extremism, counter-terrorist, imperative or loss of focus. So, what is the manifestation of this by having this language, by having this focus on non on on ideologies conducive? Yeah, yeah. What so what what does this mean in the real world then in the application of these uh, agendas? I think in short, it means that you have can have people who deplore the use of violence, mm -hmm. but hold to an extremist ideology. But although they deplore the use of violence, they are then seen as part of the terrorist problem. Mm -hmm. And I think we might be missing a trick there. That can be counterproductive, because if the, if the duty of the state is to use every tool it possibly can mm -hmm. to counter the brutality of the, of the terrorist attacks that we've witnessed, surely you should be um, engaging perhaps with those who may have a similar belief system, but who deplore the use of violence. And at the moment, as currently construed, the UK counter-terrorism strategies that states in its documents will only use intervention providers um, who um, do not have the extremist ideology that the terrorists or those vulnerable of moving towards that terrorist path um, might have. Uh, the more general point, the more general sort of implication, really, is that in the last 10 years, we have seen the merging of the discourses of what terrorism and then radicalization yeah. and now extremism. And what that tends to do is blur the very important distinction, I think, between thought and method. Mm -hmm. um, so that increasingly we're seeing parameters of counterterrorism in the UK more concerned with ideological thinking um, as much as the methods of violence in pursuit of those particular ideologies. So in a sense, I think you could say that UK counterterrorism itself is becoming more ideological. Mm. So like playing devil's advocate, and I know your, your answer to this, but 
So do you think we shouldn't be countering ideologies at all in the, in this scope? Should we be just ignoring ideology as a whole? No, it's a good question. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, I think absolutely as a democratic society, we should be countering undemocratic ideologies, even if they're non-violent. But, you know, there, there's a ballot box to do that. There's mm. elections, to say, you know, that gives the public the choice as to they want to entertain um, uh, such ideologies. Counter-terrorism should be concerned with countering terrorism. It sounds obvious, of course, but um, the, I think the concern is that the parameters of counter-terrorism have now spread into non-violent ideological thought as part of the remit of counter-terrorism. Mm. And I think, um, as I said before, that can include those who deplore the use of violence, but then are nevertheless seen as part of the terrorist problem by virtue of their non-violent but extremist ideology. And are there new challenges that are being faced in trying to, to counter and prevent terrorism at the moment? Because in the, say we're talking from the UK context in relation to your research, um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you were dealing with, predominantly with groups like the Provisional IRA, the INLA, etc., who had very set organisational frameworks where it was very clear the actors involved here, whereas now you don't necessarily have that. What, what way has that affected yeah, the agenda? Yeah, it, 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 uh, thank you for that question, John, because I think that there is an enormous caveat here and nobody wishes to underestimate the size of the challenge that's being faced, for example, by, by the British government in, in the response to terrorism. You're right, there was, a, there was an organisational threshold with the IRA, for example, where um, you know, it might have been a little bit clearer, at least, as to when somebody might want to either assist or, or engage with or, an, uh, a terrorist organisation or indeed even carry out acts of violence. The enormous challenge, of course, for the British government, as an example, is to where along the line from apparently peaceful citizen to violent person um, do you intervene? Where, where in that trajectory do you, do you intervene? And because we are confronted, as, you, as you've indicated, with such a decentralised threat, such a horizontal threat, mm -hmm. it's extremely difficult to know when um, to intervene. And, and I think in the research, uh, uh, it does point to an example of two brothers. One one that seemed to show all the signs of radicalization towards violence, and another one that seemed to be much more passive. And yet it was the latter that ultimately went on to carry out an act of terrorism. So the, the challenge is, is enormous. And, I, and, I wouldn't, and, and you know, in today's uh, it's a decentralized threat, notwithstanding the ongoing uh, problems in Northern Ireland, of course, and, and uh, distant republicanism, but uh, the, the challenge of international terrorism, its decentralized nature, has made it extremely difficult and, of course, has lowered the threshold in terms of intelligence collation as well. And you talk about, uh, in your article, the, how this, the kind of language that's used here, the kind of um, lack of conceptual clarity that's there, has led to an extremization of activity uh, by groups holding, uh, who espouse certain ideologies. What do you mean by this? Yeah, um, I, th I think um, if you look at the definition of extremism that the British government um, uses, um, it's any activity um, or, or, or public protest in support of extremist ideologies. What's interesting that if, if, you, if you believed in a non-extremist ideology, let's say you're a Democrat mm. and uh, uh, you were in an environment that, that suffocated you, that, that didn't have democratic freedoms, and you carried out a bomb explosion mm. in support of democracy. Interestingly, that was, I suppose that, you know, even in those circumstances, it would be seen as quite an extreme act. But it escapes the definition of mm. extremism um, um, as presented uh, by, by the British government. So um, I think, I think what, I, the, what I'm getting at, really, is that public protests, legal public protests that are non-violent, um, become extremitized as being linked to terrorism. Yeah. And I think one of the core messages that you get across very clearly in this research and across all your pieces 
is that there's really no intrinsic doctrinal connection for any ideology to terrorism. That there, it can be across uh, any specific ideology, uh, any ideology. Yeah, can, yeah. I, I, I mean, what what I would say is that if if there are, if there are there are doctrines that explicitly endorse the use of mm. terrorism, absolutely they 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 are linked to terrorism, most certainly. Um, but they can't take ownership of yeah. terrorism, mm. um, because there are many non-violent doctrines uh, for whom acts of terrorism being carried out in their name, yeah. and and I think that's why I prefer to sort of come away from the causes and towards the middle and say, okay, um, what are what are what are the key criteria for an act of violence to be called an act of terrorism? If it ticks all those boxes, an act of terrorism it remains, mm. regardless of who the perpetrator is. If we start going down the road of using freedom fighter, because actually I quite sympathise with the cause, even though this, these criteria satisfy my definition, I shouldn't then be tempted to use the word freedom fighter. Also, if I decide that an act of violence doesn't satisfy the criteria for terrorism, but I disagree with the cause, I should not be inclined to suddenly use the word terrorism just because I disagree with the cause. Mm -hmm. This is the challenge when you're trying to be more analytical and less subjective about the use of the term terrorism. And we have similar challenges when it comes to um, looking at radicalization and the role that radicalization uh, plays, not just for the individual, but the way it has been adopted into uh, into policy. So and this leads us on to the, the final piece of yours that we're going to discuss here, the problem with radicalization, the remit of prevent and the need to refocus on terrorism in the UK. Um, and in this, you talk about the question of the utility of, of radicalization within prevent. Could you explain to the listeners exactly what you were trying to get at with this piece? Do you know what? I, I don't even think even now people have a clear idea as to what the remit or how one would define radicalization. Mm -hmm. um, There's a discourse that started from the, around the mid-2000s, and um, early on it wasn't really clear as to what radicalization was referring to. Was it referring to those who just carried out acts of violence? Was it referring also to those who didn't carry out acts of violence but sympathized with it? Was it referring to people who had what you might term an undemocratic ideology? Mm -hmm. um, did it refer to people that had uh, sympathy for elements of Sharia law in the UK? Or did it refer to people who disagreed with violence in this country but sympathized with the Taliban? And so on. So there was, there was very indeterminate. Now, in 2011, um, there was more clarity on it in the, in the latest prevent strategy. There was more clarity in the sense that it was very clear that they were also, the government's also interested in extremist thought as well as violent deeds. Um, but even then, radicalization is, is quite a loose term. It almost gives terrorism a good name because it's, it's I think, is even more difficult to define um, um, because uh, radicalization um, in, in various ways has been uh, referred to radical thought or uh, some sort of trajectory towards radical uh, violence. Um, and, and so it, it's been quite a problematic term. Even more problematic has now been the discourse of extremism, and, and it's nigh on impossible to define objectively what extremism is, of course. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's, as I say, when we, part of the reason, of course, is to incorporate the issue of right-wing extremism um, and to try and have a, a sort of blanket approach uh, to counter all extremisms. Um, I think the difficulty lies is in what elements of that do you have within the umbrella of counter-terrorism and what elements you don't have? But uh, So with the, all this in mind, um, with the issues that we have in relation to extremism, radicalisation, etc., but clearly um, there is a threat, the, the level of that threat is debatable as well, um, but there's a threat posed uh, here within the UK what would your advice be if you were, uh, would you say, scrap, prevent and start over again? Or is there something that can be done with it at the moment that would um, would make it improve in, in the way it's, it's been put forward? No, I, I, I wouldn't uh, scrap, prevent. Um, prevent, of course, has become a toxic word in itself. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we've, you know, we've seen in the media... Uh, a uh, very sort of vitriolic opposition to prevent, the government has to do something. Um, and and uh, it has to try. Um, and it's a learning curve. Yeah. You know, there have been different iterations of prevent. Uh, it's a learning curve. 
Um, yes, uh, uh, we've heard the debates and, and, and you know, see, seen the discourses about how prevent is being seen as stigmatizing the Muslim community. I hope lessons will be learned. I think uh, I, what I really want is, is to have everybody on the common page of just trying to prevent acts of violence or prevent those going down the trajectory towards acts of violence and, and that's the uh, and that's the key thing so I, th I, I, I wouldn't be in favour of scrapping prevent no mm. um, but I certainly would be in favour of, of being very open to learning learning from lessons yeah um, within prevent and within this uh, within this article you you critically analyse the role of community cohesion as um, as part of this of this uh, this approach and of this agenda, what were you saying in, in this piece about community? Yeah, th this this was back in two thousand eleven. So it's, it's over seven years ago now. This is generally where I think uh, prevent was also being seen as a vehicle for generating community cohesion. Yeah. In other words, uh, it was becoming conflated with other policy goals. And again, I think that took the focus away from what prevent and what counter-terrorism should be concerned with, and that's countering terrorism. Of course, there are issues to do with the social cohesion, good governance, etc., that may have indirectly um, create a, uh, an environment or a, a social environment that might make terrorism less likely. But it, it, it's a moot point as to whether you know, social cohesion in general should be part of a counter-terrorism strategy. Yeah. And it also, in, around this time that you were writing, there was the discussion of individual vulnerability as well. What makes an individual vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a debate, and, and we can perhaps even, perhaps even re-evaluate this, but I, I know back in 2011, um, in fact, you know, the, the literature in terrorism tells us that terrorism is a rational act, it's calculated, mm. it's designed to have certain effects, um, and what we were seeing emerging um, towards the late 2000s, uh, 2010, was this idea that terrorism is a product of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. which again seemed to go against the sort of conventional wisdom in the literature. Now, if you're being very sceptical, you would say, well, um, uh, the reason it's presented as vulnerability that if, you know, because of the uh, uh, British presence in Afghanistan and, and, and other theatres of conflict abroad, um, uh, it might have been politically more um, palatable to present the threat as from vulnerable people who didn't really know what they were doing, as opposed to terrorist rational actors who are uh, responding to international events. Mm. No, it's uh, it's an interesting debate to have, and it, it, it it's sort of this debate, as you as you point out, this uh, conception that the person is, it can be vulnerable to it. it it go, it's counterintuitive to that rational debate. But running alongside all these um, debates about extremism, radicalization, definition of terrorism as well, is the definition of the terrorist. And the definition of the terrorist should be seen as, while connected, standing separately to the definition of terrorism. So does someone who, or an organization, who carries out an act of terrorism that fits your definition, <coughs> does that automatically make them a terrorist? That's a really complex question, John, actually. Yeah. It's an interesting one. Um, I, I, I use it as, uh, to preface that, actually. Um, a lot of people asked, uh, particularly after Nelson Mandela died, mm. well, should he be exalted as a hero or was he a terrorist? And I think that question misses the point. Yeah. I think you can be... He may, if, if he carried out acts of violence or a Spear of Destiny organisation carried out acts of violence that ticks your criteria as to what constitutes an act of terrorism, just because he goes on to become a world's great statesman doesn't mean to say that it was any less terrorism or any more terrorism mm. than at the time. So like, the point I'm making really is that you can be a terrorist and you can be a world statesman. You, you, um, um, so um, I think um, you... In answer to your question, you can be a terrorist at a given time if at that moment you have planted a bomb with the intent to generate a psychological impact for a political motive. You are the terrorist that has carried out that act of terrorism. That mm. doesn't mean to say that you will continue then to be a terrorist or that an organisation continues to be a terrorist organisation. Mm. So if you capture that moment in time, I'd say yes, that the person who did that with those intentions would be a terrorist. So it's part of the issue isn't just with the acts, it's not just with the ideology, it's not just with the motivations, it's actually with the pejorative connotations behind the word rather than just what, um, what the behaviours were, it's how 
it's it's how society at large view that word terrorism. I think so. I don't think we're ever really going to escape that. The minute you attach that label of terrorism to somebody or something, then instinctively the perception is that you are being derogatory about that person or that thing. I think in my endeavours to try and be more analytical, and, and I've included in, in the way I look at it as combatants and uh, also being possible victims of terrorism, but if we look at the Kosovan Liberation Army, for example, mm-hmm. it uh, targeted Milosevic's forces, police forces, um, with, um, with the intent to generate a psychological impact amongst a broader group of forces. Mm. Now, as far as the British and the Americans are concerned, is that a terrorism? If it satisfies your criteria for terrorism, is that a terrorism that they would be comfortable with? Uh, if the French resistance in World War II carried out acts of violence that would satisfy your definition of terrorism, is that, uh, again, a terrorism that you would sympathise with? If um, the uh, notorious Shabiha uh, uh, militias in support of uh, President Assad in Syria, if people carried out acts of violence against them, that would satisfy your criteria for being called terrorism. Analytically, as I say, we don't mm. look at the cause here, is, is that an example of terrorism that you might sympathise with here? Now, this is, this, this is really fight, you know, knocking your head against a brick wall here, because the idea that you can suggest that there may be examples of terrorism, providing they don't target civilians, if that's mm-hmm. not part of it, and providing um, you know, they're, they're uh, doing harm to the militia, if you like, of your enemies, are they terrorisms that you might potentially sympathise with? So, um, but this is, this is, this is where it, it, it's challenging, but I think that uh, is a product, thinking that way, of trying to be more analytical about the concept we're looking at rather than perjurative or emotional about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I see where you're coming from, and I, uh, it's, uh, it's something that I've, that we, we can all we can all think about, we can all uh, delve on. One of the things that has consistently troubled um, terrorism research is while there is an appreciation for the heterogeneity of terrorist actors, there this hasn't really, until recent years, come through in the research. So that there are different roles within the terrorist organization, etc. Um, so you've got the bomb maker, you've got the, the person who plants the bomb, you've also got the financer, etc. From a conceptualizing point of view and sticking with this question on who the terrorists are, does every member of the organization, once that when that organization is consistently carrying out terrorist attacks, does that classify them as a terrorist, even if they have never been involved directly or indirectly in the, or they've never been involved directly with the violent acts? No, it's a, it's a great question, a very challenging question. As an organisation, I'd say you would say it was a terrorist organisation mm. if it's, it's carrying those acts. Although, again, I'd have a caveat there, because I was asked a question many years ago, is Hezbollah a terrorist organisation? Mm. I'd say, well, that's the wrong question. If you ask me, has Hezbollah ever carried out the method of terrorism, then I would say, uh, yes, they have carried out the method of terrorism. But no, in terms of individuals, if they are facilitating uh, or financing mm. acts that they know uh, that they are supporting, that they uh, have every intention to help carry out, and that is designed to generate that psychological impact, and it's for a political motive, I think you could probably answer in the affirmative to that. Yeah. Okay. Where does the um, research on conceptualizing terrorism, conceptualizing extremism, and the role that it, it plays in counterterrorism and countering violent extremism, um, governmental approaches, where does it go from here? What are the next big challenges or next big steps to be uh, addressed within that realm? Well, uh, yeah, again, I'm glad, glad you asked that question because I think there is a tendency when we're sort of almost every generation of terrorists, we're talking about the new terrorism. Mm. Now, there may be different modes, different tactics and so on, but essentially, essentially, the, uh, the, the objective is to generate a definition or a conceptualization because, as we know, terrorism is a social construction, so it's very difficult to be definitive about something that is, after all, a social construction. But a conceptualizing t- terrorism, nevertheless, to give it some kind of shelf life, 
so that it doesn't get tossed around uh, with, with, with events, basically. So that if there was a horrific event in two years' time, that we then reformulate the definition again, or our conceptualization again, mm -hmm. or in five years again. I think, as in answer to your question, where do we go from here? I think we need to be fairly solid about what we mean by terrorism. Mm -hmm. Of course, it means different things to different people, but maybe as policymakers or as academics to have a fairly, uh, as rigid as you possibly can be, to give it some shelf life, 10, 15 years, and not to uh, have it undermined. And so it's, in, in other words, rather than having acts of violence determine what your definition should be, have your definition or conceptualization determine whether some new act of violence constitutes terrorism or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that works with me. I'll, I'll, I will accept that. <laughs> so we, I mentioned in the introduction as well that you're now the director of uh, COJIT, Combating Jihadist Terrorism in the United Kingdom. It would be remiss of me not to ask you, what is COJIT? What, what do you as an organisation do? COJIT uh, UK is a, uh, is a project that was instigated by the terrorist attacks that we saw in the UK the last year mm -hmm. in 2017. Theresa May, after the Westminster Bridge attack, called for a national conversation to work out how best to respond to terrorist attacks of this nature. And a uh, Professor Michael Clark, formerly of King's College, um, he and a consortium of private investors um, got together and, and very kindly invited me to direct a project and how we can generate this national conversation through a, converse, uh, through a conference later on this year, um, and how we can ask these difficult questions. And one of the objectives is to explore uh, where the research gaps are, if any, where the policy gaps are, um, where do we need to investigate further, um, and, um, and to really sort of come up with some concrete proposals as to how policy can either be changed or better informed. And for, for those of uh, our listeners who can't uh, come to the conference, will there be, what kind of um, resources will you be, uh, will you be, will you be? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll be disseminating uh, the outputs of the papers that we've commissioned for the conference widely. Um, and, and our whole objective would be to engage with, with, with as many as possible. We, we have the website, of course, up. Um, What's that website? Get that plug in now. Uh, we'll get the plug in on it. It's www.cogit-uk.org. And Cogit is C-O-J-I-T. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, um, and so you've, you've commissioned these pieces. You're going to have the, the conference. Uh, has it been decided what the next steps will be after that? Or are you waiting to see? Yeah, I, I, the, the, the pieces that we've commissioned are synthesis papers, mm. and they're the synthesis of the evidence in the particular topic areas that we've asked mm. authors to write about. So um, the conference will come together, and we're going to try and generate a consensus as to where we need to go from here in terms of policy, research gaps, what's what needs to have priority, and perhaps what, what, what hasn't worked as well. So we determine what, what has and hasn't worked mm. in the UK context. And then phase two will um, relate to sort of or, or entail um, going to much further exploration of the particular issues that we've identified at the conference. And being funded uh, by independent private funders, um, does this give you a bit more freedom than if you were sponsored by a governmental agency, or how, how have you found that? I think so. I, I, I think um, um, it's unusual to mm. be to be uh, funded by, uh, by the private sector, and I, and I think it, um, often you only hear of private sector involvement in terms of business continuity mm. or emergency preparedness and all that. But to have uh, them involved in funding this sort of project, and I think I suppose one of the things uh, that we have. Uh, concentrated quite heavily on in this project is what are the motivations for this? Why are people doing this? Um, and and that's, that's a particular emphasis that I suppose, you, you know, you, you could uh, um, really go to town on it with an, an independent nature. So without fear or favour, mm -hmm. whatever the uncomfortable truths are, um, that's what we're looking to try and tease out. And with seeing all these synthesis papers coming through and, um, and with your your widespread knowledge, widespread knowledge of terrorism studies as a whole. Um, how do you feel the health is of terrorism studies now? Do you feel the final time I'm asking someone this? Do you feel as as Mark Sageman said that they, we've got a stagnation in terrorism research, or do you feel otherwise? 
Yeah, again, it's an interesting question because I think Mark Satan's work is really calling for better interaction between intelligence agencies mm -hmm. and the research community to their mutual benefit. Um, uh, that That's a fairly sort of, uh, I'm not sure how possible that is, but it's a fairly tangible issue that potentially could be resolved if there was better, better communication. But in terms of terrorism research, I think... It's the, one of the challenges, one of the, the real challenges is, is going forward is, is the subjectivity issue. Um, critical terrorism studies, I think, has made an important contribution because they, they have tried to sort of flag up the fact that, you know, the states have carried out more acts of terrorism than any non-state groups. Um, and, and so um, I think it's an interesting time for terrorism studies um, and, and, it, and it's faced with many challenges, but I, I think... I think uh, um, I think the jury's out on where it's going to go because it's got you know, a number of challenges ahead. And at that point you make about critical terrorism studies, I was, I was just checking, uh, checking the date there just because Richard Jackson's podcast, which comes out a few days after we record um, today, um, really goes in depth about the, the role that critical terrorism studies play. So if anyone wants to... Um, listen back to understand what, what Anthony was talking about in relation to critical terrorism studies. So if you go to the podcast released on um, on April 22nd of 2018 and listen to Richard Jackson's discussion about critical terrorism studies, you really get an insight into, into the role that plays. Um, where, do you, where do you see the overall field of terrorism studies going or where do you feel it needs to go in the, in the next few years then? Well, I'd be biased slightly and say that as long as there's a a solid conceptual foundation mm. of terrorism studies, um, then they can go a long way. I think um, students who want to explore case studies of terrorism obviously have to be clear about what, what is terrorism about a particular case study mm. um, or what's other forms of political violence. And I think Martha Crenshaw, amongst others, has said, you know, there are a whole range of different types of violence often in civil wars and, and conflict. So, um, but uh, but as, as a field, of course, it's a growth it's a growth field. Mm -hmm. It's a growth field um, because of the uh, prominence of the phenomenon of terrorism in today's world. And um, it's not going to go away. You can never eliminate terrorism. It's all going, always going to be a matter of research interest. And um, unfortunately, because of the prominent uh, prominence, if you like, of international terrorism and its threat and the significance of its threat, mm -hmm. it's going to be here uh, for a good while to come. Yeah, I think... I think that's a good way to to end this uh, this episode and also to end this series. Um, Anthony, thank you so much. For Thanks very much on Great. today's pod, and uh, thank you to all of you for for listening, and not just to today's episode, but across uh, this whole series, which we started back in September twenty seventeen. We're about fifty episodes in now, so I've decided I might I might take a break from the microphone for a while, <laughs> but this doesn't mean that this is the end of talking terror as a whole. Uh, we are very likely to come back with a second series and um, there might be a very different format who knows we're going to we're going to take stock and be sure to give us our, our your feedback to tell us what you would like uh, to see talking terror turn into or would you like it, it to stay the same um, but thank you to everyone who's been involved thank you to all those people who have um, who've been interviewed by me and by interviewed by Andrew Silk in my absence um, at times uh, throughout this whole series. Uh, thank you to everyone uh, who has listened. Thank you to all the researchers from our MSc class in terrorism and counterterrorism here at UEL uh, for all their work, um, both uh, past and, and former students as well as some of our PhD students. Uh, thank you in particular to Neil Ginty, Dan Blackman, uh, for pushing me to, to really do this at the moment and the support from Fiona Harrison and others at that time. But in particular, uh, thank you to Jamie Murray for everything he's done, uh, putting up with all the edits that I sent him week in, week out. Um, it's, I, I wouldn't have been able to do this uh, without him. And uh, yeah, so don't delete us from your podcast feed. Um, you never know, we might, we might be popping up again uh, sooner than you think. And of course, on my behalf, I'd like to also thank uh, Diana and Kira for all their support as well. So, chat to you all, who knows when. Talk to them. Bye.